Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, listeners, have you ever wanted to know what links Henry Purcell and barbecued penguin meat or how a fantasy cast for a minimalism movie might look? Well, they've got just the thing for you on the classical music pod. Hosts Sam and Tim guide you through the mad, bad world of classical music. They've interviewed stars from Sheku Kenna Mason to Nicola Benedetti, tackle chewy subjects such as musical decolonization and the Ukrainian identity, and peeked under the bonnet of works both in and outside the canon. It's all topped off with a healthy sprinkling of cutaway humor and homemade jingles. Don't miss their latest season, available fortnightly from all good podcast providers. Grammy Award-winning American countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo has a voice that has captivated audiences in the greatest opera houses worldwide. His musical brilliance and dramatic stage presence are heightened by the unique quality of his voice. There's a novelty inherent to the countertenor voice which draws people in, and I love to exploit that. It exists in a register that we most often think of associated with the female, it has this yin and yang of genders encompassed within it that give it a kind of otherness. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. I have to start with the opera that we recently performed together at the Met. You performed the title role of the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten by Philip Glass. Every single night you killed it. It was an unbelievable run of performances. Wow, thank you. Yeah, you were fantastic, but the opera production was amazing too. It had everything, Um, this amazing score, the costumes, the sets were incredible, and juggling. I mean, you were right in the middle of all of that. What was that whole experience like for you? 
Well, uh, you know, in a way, I also feel like I'm a small part of it because there are so many moving parts and um, it is such a collaborative effort. That's what I love about opera. You know, one piece can't really work without the other, but it's definitely very humbling. Um, and you feel sort of like a grain of sand in a funny way on the stage of the Met because you're such a small thing on that stage and with so many incredible musicians from the chorus and the orchestra around you that I try and sort of channel all of that energy through me. And that's, you know, it's a fantastic, thrilling, wonderful experience to have that. And of course, it also comes with a lot of pressure in a way to, you know, do it right and to not make a mistake and to not get sick in the middle of it or whatever it might be. Um, and so I take it seriously. And I think shaving my head and waxing my body in the nude entrance, they're all a kind of uh, a part of a ritual. So there's a, a ritualistic aspect about it that helps me feel like I can channel people's energy and help be a lightning rod for the show without crumbling under the pressure. Can you take me through like the first 20 or 30 minutes? Because the opera opens, you're unseen. You're in a tomb being unearthed and you descend this giant staircase. You're naked. And it's what, like 20 minutes before you even sing a single note? It's probably about, I think you're right, 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah. That's got to be hard. What is that like? And the entire audience is staring straight at you. You can't blink. You can't clear your throat. You can't do anything. And then you have to sing. It really takes a kind of gentle focus is what I would call it. And, you know, Phelan McDermott gave us these four movement qualities to play with, one of which is molding. And that's where it's like you're moving your hand through the air or whatever your leg or your or, or your body as if the air was made out of clay or oil or something like that. And so if ever I get unfocused in some way, nervous about my singing or my voice, I just focus on the idea of trying to mold, you know, and just doing that. And that takes me to a better place. Now, I, I'm lucky in that when I'm hidden in the chorus, I can kind of hum along with them. Um, and so I sometimes secretly do that up there quietly and get ready to sort of uh, start out. Mm. Can we talk about the nakedness for a second? Yeah. Okay. So we did this opera in the spring, and it was warm, and it was a humid day in New York City, and the string players are always very sensitive to humidity because it affects their instrument. So a few of the musicians in the orchestra asked our manager why it was so warm and if they could put the AC on before the show started. After a minute, our orchestra manager came back down and told us that he was informed that the air conditioning will not go on until Mr. Costanzo was fully dressed. Were you even aware that they were holding the air conditioning for you? I mean, I said to the, the guys backstage, if you had to perform in front of all these people that you knew and be naked, you know, you wouldn't want it to be really cold and it gets really chilly on the stage. So yes. I said, you know, 
to whatever extent possible, you know, within reason, if if for just that 10 minutes, it cannot be really freezing on stage, that would be great. But I had no idea that all the people in the pit were like sweltering and going off tune. Look, uh, well, no, we were uh, were very cognizant of what was going on stage, especially the men. We were more than happy to be a little warm for your sake. I, I think next time what we have to do is make the any players who might feel susceptible to it, we have to they have to play the up until then with no pants on or something. Yeah, right. That might be a union issue. Okay. Um, in this performance, there were large chunks of the opera where you're not singing at all, yet your eyes are telling a story and the acting is really amazing. Where do you get these acting skills from? And is it something that you were trained in? Well, thank you. I mean, working with Phelan McDermott, the director, is really an illumination. And he's really, really good at this kind of performance. But I think it combines with some of my own experiences. You know, I started performing when I was about eight on stage, but then I moved to the professional realm when I was 11 and I did Broadway for a long time. And doing those shows night after night after night, what you develop, not knowing it necessarily, is a kind of instinct for how to direct the attention or hold the attention of an audience. And there's a sort of feeling to it that is hard to describe to gather people's focus, to direct it, and then to make a small shift in your physicality meaningful once you have their um, their focus. And those kinds of instincts have been developed over almost 30 years on the professional stage for me, you know, since I was a, a child. And also I've performed in a lot of different contexts. So, you know, I started on Broadway and then I did film and then I went to college and studied all kinds of different things, but then wound up doing dance with um, choreographers as well as as then my opera career and, and all the competitions and different, you know, concert scenarios that come along with that. So I feel like what I'm always trying to do is take the temperature of the audience and see where they are and see what I can do to direct it. Um, And there are nights when it happens instantaneously, when I walk out on the staircase and I'm naked and I feel that they are 100% there and not moving. But there are other nights when they're kind of fidgeting around or I can tell they're not there. And so that's when I have to either slow down or, or, you know, drop my shoulders or change my physicality in some way that allows them to settle their focus on me. And then once I get them there and, and actually people ask a lot, you know, well, why, why are you even naked to begin with? And I think that was the idea is that it was going to really snap people into focus in a way that would allow me to be the person that carries them through this three and a half hour marathon um, because they form this intimate bond. So it's something that I'm constantly figuring out. And of course, each audience is different. So each night you have to approach things in a slightly different way. You have to sort of consider how you feel their energy and, um, you know, if I'm singing Handel, I might use a larger pause in a cadenza to make sure that they're really attuned to something. If I'm singing Philip Glass and there's no wiggle room for tempo, I might use dynamics vocally to sort of bring them in, or I might use physicality dramatically to do it. So I'm, I'm constantly a barometer for what's happening in the room that way. Your voice is so unique. The first time I heard it, I didn't know what to make of it. 
it's just otherworldly. How would you describe your own voice? Well, thank you so much. I think I have a different experience of my voice in that it feels totally natural to me. But I think in terms of the way other people experience it, it feels disconnected from what they see visually. It has a kind of piercing, I would say, purity, but also an occasional kind of uncanny richness that creeps in. And it exists in a register that we most often think of associated with a female. Um, and so because of that, it has this yin and yang of genders, I feel like, encompassed within it that give it, as you say, a kind of otherness. And I think that that is part of what makes it exciting and sometimes strangely emotional because it evokes everything from ghosts and spirits to childhood or old age and frailty. So it can, it can evoke a lot of different things, I think. And there's something about the resonance in your voice, especially because of the range that you command. It's loud. I mean, it's, it's, it can be really loud. What's it feel like to be able to put out that much sound? Well, I say that opera or that classical technique is kind of the Olympics of singing. It does require a lot of preparation and a lot of energy and a lot of coordination, I would say. Um, but I think it does for all of us in, in this, you know, classical sphere. There's a lot of that kind of um, slow state that we have to get into after hours of practice where our body understands a kind of coordination but it is a really exciting feeling to be able to ring a space like a bell with your voice and to find, um, as you said, the perfect word, the resonance to do that. When it feels right, since you asked what it feels like, it feels really balanced. It doesn't feel like I'm screaming. It feels like there's a perfect kind of equilibrium. And that in that um spot, it can really, um, it can feel like, that's what I think makes it feel like someone's singing right next to you in a space as opposed to far away over there. I want to talk for a moment about your early life. How does a kid growing up in North Carolina with two parents who are psychology professors at Duke University end up on stage in New York City? Well, you know, I guess I've always been very determined or focused. Um, and so when I was, you know, performing from eight years old at community theater and state theater and things like that in North Carolina, people seemed to think I was good at it. And um, and so I then said to my parents, I want to try for more. And that kept growing and growing. And so they were supportive. They were never stage parents and they never pushed me to do anything. They just wanted me to be able to do things the way I wanted. And um, so I would go audition in New York and see if anything was possible. And I eventually booked, the first thing was a, a Broadway national tour. And it was so much fun. It was so interesting to me. Um, the level was so high. And I was able to rise to that level and to, to stay there. And, and so um, I kept seeking out different things and I did everything from, you know, a new musical at Playwrights Horizons about William Butler Yeats to performing a Christmas Carol on Broadway with Ben Green and Terrence Mann and, you know, with all different size ensembles. And, you know, sometimes you were doing um, a couple shows a week like opera and sometimes 
I remember when we did A Christmas Carol, we did 17 shows a week of this two hour show. Um, so, you know, it was all different kinds of uh, experiences. And um, all the way through, you know, I tried to to stay engaged and, and hone my art, which is is still what I'm trying to do all the time. You went from Broadway to opera. Was there a point where you said, okay, Broadway is one thing, but I really want to sing opera? It's a good question. You know, I um, when I was 13, I was asked to do The Turn of the Screw by Benjamin Britten, and it was really psychologically complex. I mean, the story itself is, and then Britten adds a whole other layer to it. And it was a great opportunity to connect to my parents and what they do and who they are, because there was a whole psychology and trauma aspect to it that we analyzed together. And I think doing that and by way of tapping into my parents' sophisticated approach to psychology, I How realized- How old were you at that point? I was about 13 then. Uh, That's pretty intense for a 13-year-old. Yeah. I mean, it was- because I had to be, I had to play this role. And so we started to, to talk about the role and, you know, we were, they would drive me, it was in New Jersey, this, this opera, something that used to be called the New Jersey Opera Festival. It was about an hour long drive from New York, which is where we were staying. And so we would talk in the car there about this, the plot line. And it was difficult for a 13 year old to grapple with in a way, because, you know, what was actually going on and what was the implication of something or another. So we talked about it just like you would talk about a piece of literature in, in school, really. Um, but what then the next step was, was to figure out how to express that and the depth of expression that was possible with opera because of the complexity of the music and the catharsis of the art form felt to me, like it had a depth that was harder to reach in musical theater, which was really fun and often much more entertaining in a straightforward way, but didn't necessarily reach that kind of depth all the time. And on top of it, I, you know, somebody said, well, maybe you're a countertenor. I was singing as a boy soprano, thought, thinking that's what I was. And I'd never heard of a countertenor. Um, so I looked it up and it just basically seemed like I should keep singing high. And, and so I did that. Um, and I got a chance the next year to sing with Pavarotti, who was doing his competition in Philadelphia. I got to see this whole, what I would call glimpse of the golden age. You had Pavarotti and you had all those kinds of old school opera folks. And there was a kind of wonderful, warm, romance about that whole world, seeing it, being a part of it, feeling like I was really steeped in the tradition that was opera, connected to the vitality of expression that it can have, but also interested in entertainment, because that's how I began, has given me an interesting trifecta as I approach the art form and am not at all interested in eradicating traditions, but rather embroidering them so that they can have more relevance today. And you do that night after night uh, when you perform on stage. It's amazing. So the opera bug had bitten you. You'd already sung with Pavarotti, um, but then you shift. You decide to go to Princeton and pursue a formal education outside of music. Was this your idea or was it the influence of your parents? At that point, I sort of knew I wanted to be an opera singer, but my parents said, well, you know, you, 
you could go to conservatory, but there's so much else to learn about. And it's true that opera involves poetry and literature and history and all these different interdisciplinary things. So um, eventually they convinced me that maybe I should consider going to university instead of conservatory. And then as I went to visit Princeton, I saw all of the incredible academic things that were happening there, courses on practical ethics or computer science or things that, you know, I still think about and I still use and that really gave me a different understanding for the world. Um, but most importantly at Princeton, when I got to my senior project, which they call the senior thesis, I put together this huge sort of Baroque pasticcio of opera and I had to produce it. I had to find the money. I needed like $35,000 to do it and the university wasn't going to give it to me. And so I went and created a whole production plan, raised the money, raised a hundred thousand extra, made a documentary. It went to Cannes and all of this stuff. And the choreographer who was directing it and working with me on creating it, who is a professional New York artist named Carol Armitage, she um, wanted to start her dance company again in New York. And so as I graduated college, she asked if I'd be the executive director of her dance company based upon the work I had done producing at Princeton. And so the two years that I did that between college and grad school were a whole nother education into marketing, press, fundraising, you know, company management, all of those kinds of things. And, um, and so I learned a lot that has served me really well in those years as the executive director of that dance company um, before I went and really, you know, got down to nuts and bolts and learned how to be a better opera singer and also as you do at conservatory in a way you can't at a place like Princeton, what's the industry? What are the competitions? What are the auditions? Who, who, who are the young artists programs? You know, who are the people in charge of this or in charge of that? And, you know, how, if you want to be a part of this world, how do you play ball? You must be the most well-rounded and well-educated opera singer I've ever met. Um, when you're producing and you're being an administrator, do you think the fact that you're an artist first and foremost helps you in those roles? Is there some cross-contamination there that is beneficial or does it get in the way? I think that's a great question. I, um, I think that the reason for me that I've been able to be successful as a creative producer comes from being an artist. Um, because really a lot of producing in those contexts is, um, having an understanding of what the artists need and what the orchestra needed and what they wanted, what wouldn't be comfortable for them. The sort of diplomacy and the skill of communication is the same kind of communication I talk about with the artist and the audience. You know, that very carefully honed communication where you're listening and also expressing yourself. I think that's the most successful kind of producing and leadership where you can assemble a team of the right people, have the right kind of ideas, but also listen to the artists who are there who are going to actually be doing it with you and create what they need in order to really um, excel and then figure out how to package all of that for the press, for the public, for a funder and successfully communicate that the same way I would want to convey an aria or, you know, convey an emotion in performance. So for me, the two are very, very closely linked. And of course, I believe that the arts in this country are so often determined 
by people who have not had the experience of being an artist. And so I am a big advocate of the opportunities for artists to sort of shape the creative landscape themselves based on their knowledge of the material. That's fantastic. You know, when you sing, you make a connection with the audience and you make it relevant, but opera doesn't always have a reputation of being accessible and uh, contemporary. What are some of the ways that you're trying to change that perception? I think that there's nothing fundamentally off-putting about the art form itself. That's what I've discovered. When I have friends who come to the opera and they have the right key to open the door or the right point of access or the right context in which to experience it, there's nothing about the form itself which puts them off. But what gets them there, what engages them, what gives them a point of access? Sometimes it's the production. Sometimes it's the way in which they receive the invitation. Sometimes it's the, you know, cost of the ticket. But how can we make opera a part of the zeitgeist in a different way? And for me, again, it goes back to collaboration. Um, collaborating with artists who already have a resonance in popular culture and getting them not only to just do what they do on top of opera, but actually involving them in a complicated, nuanced way so that they have an understanding of our tradition and we are seeing it anew through their eyes. Somehow those synergies sort of spiral outwards and the audience gets excited. So how can we come up with different forms of engagement, different forms of community and involvement, where we're really not only telling the story of opera as it exists, but telling other people's stories in different ways with the tools we have. Hmm. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the people that you bring to the opera, maybe your friends and colleagues that come and see you. And I have to say that the crowd that comes for you is really unique and really colorful and from all walks of life. And uh, it's it's hopeful for the future, that's for sure. Thank you. I hope so too. And I love, I love that um, energy. I mean, just the idea that, you know, you had this um, old Eastern European couple that were complaining about their seats next to this, you know, genderqueer couple sitting, you know, the, the whole idea of that does feel like the future to me. And I think people like the presence of both of those, you know, I, I haven't found that many traditional opera goers who are upset by the fact that there are all of these young, you know, interesting looking people at the opera. Um, rather, they find it exciting and it, 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 it ups. And, and similarly, the young people who come aren't rolling their eyes at all of the old opera patrons or fans or, you know, aficionados who are there. But rather, that's what they want from going to the opera, the experience of the grandeur and the, the sort of fur coats or whatever it might be, where everyone is enjoying each other's presence. And um, Akhenaten was a rare opportunity to collaborate with a place as, as formidable as the Met to, to do that and to do it as a kind of case study almost, as a litmus test. What if we, you know, what if I convinced Vox to do a video about the making of Akhenaten? Would that get different people? What if we could get Terry Gross on Fresh Air to do an interview? Or what if we could um, do an engagement project with Sing Harlem and uh, public school kids and bring that to four different locations around the city? Um, what if we could do a costume competition with design schools throughout New York 
based around Akhenaten and bring that to the People's Ball in Brooklyn? You know, what are all the different ways that we could raise a kind of awareness and buzz and and get some discount codes to different communities and then see what happens? And so, you know, it was certainly not only me, it was everybody at the Met um, working in, in concert, but it was exciting to be a part of that sort of feeling of change. And I'm I really hope we can capture those people and, and capitalize on what we were able to create there. That's so exciting. It's clear that you love performing, you love the arts and producing it too, but you're also very involved in education. Tell me what it's like when you go into a school, say in the Bronx and sing for a group of kids that have never heard opera, much less a counter tenor before. What's their reaction as you start to sing? I love that so much. I mean, they laugh a lot at the beginning or they cover their ears, but I that's for me the first step of engagement. And so I love seeing that and I kind of welcome that and I keep going through that and I don't rebuke it in any way. I smile along with them because I think there's a novelty inherent to the countertenor voice which draws people in and I love to exploit that. Um, but also, you know, kids are so struck by the uniqueness of the sound and the experience that if you give them a couple of tools, you don't have to, they don't have to speak Italian, you don't have to give them a whole history lesson. But if you just talk about the emotion in a piece and you connect it to the emotion that they might be experiencing in their lives and open them up by talking about what they're going through in their own lives. And then you say, okay, well, this is a piece about those very similar things. That's really the uniqueness of the sound combined with the intensity of their lives. I mean, every kid that I've encountered in, as I go to schools is having some kind of intense experience, whether they're upset they didn't get a sandwich or whether their brother was killed. You know, it, it's a different thing, but they, they experience things in an operatic way. And so if you can make it seem like it, there's this outlet that expresses that in the same way I felt it when I was a kid, then they connect to it. And that connection must be something to witness. What's it like when you're singing for a kid and their hands are over their ears and they're laughing, or maybe they don't want to hear it, and then eventually they start to listen and connect to your voice. What is that moment like as a performer for you? It's very moving to see, and it gives you a sense of universality that the music itself and that the human voice, which is so primal, is something that connects us and that from the time we're children is what we relate to. And if you do it in this extreme way of opera, it can unlock these kind of deep emotions. And, and to see that happen in kids is very affirming. It makes you believe in that moment that there's a reason to keep doing opera and to keep pushing for more people to know about it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.